The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Well? I should be back from your face and pinned at the neck. I told her that. I told you that. We tried it. It just didn't seem to suit me. And this is the History of Literature podcast. That was Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak in the movie Vertigo from 1958. That is a film full of atmosphere, full of mood, a deep, rich setting where characters can develop. Do you remember photo labs, dark rooms? How you're in there with the film negatives and the chemicals and those special bulbs and the magical moment when a photo a portrait, let's say, the face of a person whom you've captured on film, when that emerges from the darkness and becomes something real, a real image coming to life. That's mood in a novel, too, isn't it? The city, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, as a background, and a character developing, emerging, just like the print in the dark room ready to make his or her way in the world, dealing with the good and the bad of a place, and the good and the bad within. In Vertigo, it's almost literally true. Roger Ebert describes the scene that I played as the best shot in all of Hitchcock, when Kim Novak emerges, finally looking exactly as the obsessed Jimmy Stewart wants her to look. She emerges through a green fog, green from a neon sign outside the window. But it could be an emergence from a dark room, as film turns into tangible image, to projection. And is it a coincidence that this process mirrors Alfred Hitchcock's own obsessions? All those blondes in his films over the years looking just so the manipulation that a director has, the way he fusses and demands and creates. Aren't those there in Jimmy Stewart's face as he watches with lust and horror and deep need and release, getting what he wants? It's horrible and human, all in this floating, fuzzy neon light crackling with energy. It's awful and awesome. Our guest today is a connoisseur of such places, both in books and films he's loved, and his own novel, Dragonfish. We talk about all this and more as he takes us through his own journey of books and films that he has loved. A conversation with the novelist and professor of creative writing, Vu Tran, today on the history of literature.
Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor. And they're delicious, ready to eat meals. These things are amazing, chef crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. I'm joined now by the novelist Boo Tran, assistant professor in the English department at the University of Chicago and author of the novel Dragonfish, which came out in 2015. Professor Tran has been described as, quote, a fiction writer whose work thus far is preoccupied with the legacy of the Vietnam War for the Vietnamese who remained in the homeland, the Vietnamese who immigrated to America, and the Americans whose lives have intersected with both. Professor Tran, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, so we invited you here today for a new feature that we're calling Books I Have Loved. And the only rule is that you must have loved these books at some point in your life, though maybe that love has faded with time. And I have to say, you sent along a list that had me smiling from ear to ear. Was it difficult to choose them? I guess yes and no. I mean, anytime someone asks you to like talk about, you know, especially when you're a writer, anyone... Anytime someone asks you to talk about books, you just have this long list. And so it was difficult in that sense. But when I started thinking about like books that have um, shaped me either most recently or or I, I had just a wonderful experience reading them. I mean, uh, you know, these four books came up to mind pretty quickly. Right. Now, did you feel self-conscious in any sense? I've known writers who struggle to choose books because they don't necessarily like the way readers will draw lines between the books that they choose and and their own writing. Yeah, I think there's this a kind of fear of people seeing what you've essentially stolen. <laughs> <laughs> right. I imagine if I, when I was younger, I would have been much more self-conscious about 
people seeing the, you know, the fingerprints or being self-conscious about how it would be judged about the books that I love. Uh, I think I'm at an age and a point in my career now where I, I don't care that much. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can only, especially if you're doing an interview, you can only be interesting if you really, <laughs> if, if you really mean what you say and if you're honest and, uh, uh, I honestly do love all four of these books. So, okay, just, it just makes everything easier when you can just be honest. <laughs> right. It's like the twenty-year-old might stand in front of the closet deciding what to wear for thirty minutes, and the, uh, yeah. you know, the thirty-something or forty-something just throws on whatever and gets on with the day. Exactly. Uh, I'm moving much more in that direction. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I'd like to talk to you about your own writing too, and we also have a couple of films we might get to if we have time. Um, Great. But let's just jump into the books. Okay. So uh, the first book you chose is The Magus by John Fowles. Now, that is a postmodern novel from 1965. And it's kind of, I mean, John Fowles has such a reputation of, first of all, just being a, a genius and writing uh, enormous books. The French Lieutenant's Woman is another one uh, that some listeners might be more familiar with. But uh, the Magus certainly caused quite a splash when it came out. And he is, he's such an interesting writer. He's such an interesting literary figure. How did this book come your way? Um, you know, I, I actually don't. Oh, I, I, I remember now. I, I took a, a class in, in uh, contemporary British literature. Mm -hmm. And my professor had us read, I believe it was The Collector. His first three novels were, you know, he had these, this string of three major, major successes, mm -hmm. you know, with The Collector and then The French Lieutenant's Woman and then The Magus. Or wait a minute, it was, I forget the order. I, I think it might have been The Magus first. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I love the book so much. And, and, and so I, you know, I dove into French Lieutenant's Woman and The Magus. And it was my first, it was my first experience with metafiction. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, in the last 20, 30 years, I think metafiction has become a bit tiresome. You know, this kind of self-conscious narrative right. uh, has, you know, there are cliches now like footnotes and et cetera that, that don't really do much for a lot of people. But at the time and in the 60s, it was quite remarkable. And for me, I guess this would be the uh, the late 90s. It was kind of monumental for me because I felt like, you know, a book like French Lieutenant's Woman is a kind of pastiche of the Victorian novel and you're reading it and you're loving it. And then suddenly he interrupts the narrative and makes a character of, of himself, the author. Mm -hmm. I think as an aspiring writer, it's, it's quite a wonderful thing to see someone who can self-consciously write a Victorian novel that, that is full of sex and intrigue and everything and manipulate the reader's emotions. And then right. on a dime, uh, twist the narrative into a different form. Uh, and to see, you know, a writer do that, it really, you know, showed me the possibilities of form and, and uh, of, of fiction. And for me, I mean, I guess that was, I was about 21, 22. That was, uh, that was really uh, a big thing. Right. And I think when I read The Magus, that was also a big thing because it's such a big book. I was proud of myself for reading such a big book. But realizing also that you can write uh, a big uh, book of ideas, but also have it be a page turner because it's it's a it's a pot boiler in many ways. Right. It has it has intrigue. It has sex. It has mystery. 
it has all these things that uh, a normal uh, a mainstream reader can pick up and enjoy just as much as anyone uh, and you know not really care about the ideas he's playing with so you know that's how i came to the megas and uh, i i remember reading it in like three days and just um and just loving actually if i remember now i i remember reading an amazon review and before i, I was i was about maybe 50 pages in and for some reason i was reading an amazon review and it gave away the ending <laughs> and i was so upset i said i have to read this as quickly as possible so i don't feel you know upset anymore about the pat the fact that it's been spoiled <laughs> it's like ripping off the band-aid quickly exactly exactly but it, it was still you know a great experience reading it right now it's i have not read the book it i have a, a sort of a thumbnail summary here it says it tells the story of a young british graduate who is teaching english on a small greek island where he becomes embroiled in the psychological illusions of a master trickster so were you pulled in by the story or were you more admiring that the story gave the author a set of hooks to hang all of these ideas and yeah i think it's both you know i mm -hmm. i it's uh, it's always interesting to me. I think they don't really teach you this in uh, in, in MFA programs, um, but sometimes we have to kind of find our stories. Not necessarily one story, mm -hmm. but y you kind of have to not only find figure out what you want to say, but also find uh, a story that allows you to say that in a compelling way. Right. And you know, some people are lucky to to you know stumble on that early some people it takes a long time i think for for john fowles he found it rather early because he, he published these books when he was quite young and you know a book like the magus when you have like this figure of cochise I, I i forget if that's how you pronounce his name he actually tells the the the, the narrator how to pronounce his name but i've forgotten <laughs> and but anyway, you know, it's like you say, he's a kind of a trickster. He's this rich old man, uh, mysterious, lives on his own, and and is kind of manipulating reality for the narrator, uh, not only playing with his head, but also giving him a gift, in a sense, because uh, uh, the protagonist is this young man who, who kind of is trying to find his way into maturity. And, and that kind of playing with reality is very much you know, a mirror image of, of Faust himself, you know, Faust is doing that with the reader. And you, you know what I mean? It's like, so in many ways, I think Faust found the perfect story for a lot of the things he was trying to say, mm -hmm. a plot and, and a set of characters that, that mirrored a lot of the games he was playing as, as an author. And I say games, uh, not to reduce it or to simplify what he's doing, but I, I do think that he thinks of, of of um, the human condition as a kind of game, mm -hmm. and 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 how we view happiness, how we gain happiness, how we deal with with conflict is very much a kind of uh, up to us. It's it's in a sense, it's under our control, and in that sense, it becomes a kind of game. Right. Uh, you trick yourself into into dealing with with sadness or conflict. Do you think that he was uneasy with the the power that a novelist has or the the game, so to speak, that a novelist can play? Well, that's a great question. You know, I I have a sense that that Fowles never was uneasy about it, but I do think some people are. Mm -hmm. 
I would imagine that there is a kind of, for some writers who, who play these games with readers, that they're, I imagine they would be self-conscious about it. I mean, is, is this really, is this in a sense a, a genuine search for truth or is it gamesmanship, you know? Right. Am I uh -huh. using technique or am I using, am I cheating in a way by exactly. manipulating yeah. the reader? Or at least I see it in certain writers where I wonder if at, at a certain point, what kind of truth are you pursuing or are you really just, I guess you can call it showing off, but, but you wonder sometimes like the, the pyrotechnic aspects of certain writers, whether they're really, you know, is there any genuine uh, curiosity about the human condition behind those pyrotechnics or is it just, you know, a, a way of, of, of showing off and, and, right. and, you know, and being competitive with writers that are just as smart and talented, if that makes sense. Right. I also, I feel like there's been a movement away from omniscience and the omniscient narrator and, and people have, you're right. Writers have been increasingly uncomfortable with it. And I wonder if some of the metafiction was a way of dealing with some of those concerns to kind of say, look, I'm going to, it's kind of foolish to think that I could actually be omniscient. So I'm mm -hmm. going to show you how all of the behind the scenes stuff works in order to gain your trust. That's a great point. You know, I, you know, I teach fiction writing and, and I've, I've found that the omniscient point of view is the hardest point of view to teach. Right. Uh, because so few contemporary writers use it. I think Zadie Smith used it uh, really well in White Teeth. I think Michael Chabon used it really well in Cavalier and Clay. But, but I can't think of many examples of true omniscient voice. And I, I do think it, it's, it's a reflection of, of the culture. I think, mm -hmm. I guess I can only speak for American culture, but we definitely, especially since the seventies and eighties, we've, we've moved to this more kind of myopic approach to life. And, you know, especially in the last, 10, 15 years, it's all about me, me, me. And, and, and I think that's reflected in the fact that most, you know, young writers write in the first person. Uh, right. It's about, it's about voice. It's about this kind of self-conscious projection of self. And it's a, I think there's some self-consciousness about pretending to speak for everyone. If you know that you yourself are exactly you know, male or coming from a white perspective or whatever the Exactly. The individual's it's, it's, background is you don't want to presume to speak for every type of person. Exactly. And, and you know, the, the kind of metafictional games that writers have been playing, I think, is also uh, in keeping with that, you know, that movement towards the self. I mean, if I read another novel where uh, one of the characters goes by the author's name, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> I'll bang my head against the wall. I mean, <laughs> It's, right. It's one of those cliches now. And, you know, it's not that they're not doing somewhat interesting things with it, but at a certain point, you, you, you just get a sense that this is a cultural thing. Right. You know, whatever reason they're doing it in the book, it's actually a reflection of the culture and, and, and this obsession with self and, and this uh, idea of the self as, as the center of the universe. You know, I, I, maybe we've always, we've probably always kind of felt that way. Um, but I feel like nowadays, I think technology has allowed us to really, really put, you know, ourselves at the center of things. And that definitely is reflected in our, our fiction, our literature. Right. Right. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move to the bonus question. Okay. Okay. Imagine you are in a debate and the rules of the debate 
are as follows. There's one listener in the room who is only going to read one book. You need to persuade the listener to read The Magus. Your opponent needs to persuade the listener to read Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. The winner gets a free t-shirt and the loser will be put to death. I don't know. I don't know. That might be a little, ex- <laughs> might be a little extreme. extreme. I think I was reading the, the plot summary of the Magus when I came up with the question. Anyway, how do you like your chances? Boy, that's a tough one. I don't think you're going to go wrong in terms of, of enriching your life reading either book. Right. And they're similar, right? They're, I guess, 30 years apart or so. But they Yeah, yeah. They're somewhat similar. Um, though I will say that that I think most readers reading the Magus will not. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've heard people. I, yeah, I, it took me a year to read Infinite Jest. It took me six months. I really had to, you know, I really had to power not power through. I, it was a slog, and I really had to make myself, uh, uh, you know, uh, get through certain area, uh, certain parts of, of Infinite Jest. I don't think you'll find a lot of readers who would say that about the Magus. Uh, there's some heavy lifting, uh, intellectual heavy lifting in it, but uh, the plot and the characters themselves. I mean, it, it, it'll you'll speed through the the the, the novel. Mm. Yeah, I think you'd be hard pressed to 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 find the book boring. Right. Well, that's you a know? great argument for it. I think yeah. you, you so, probably so you, just uh, sold a few copies. <laughs> so yeah, it has the intellectual heft, heft of a book like Underworld or, or Infinite Jest. Maybe not the same kind of heft, but uh, on top of it, it's also a, an, a, you know, a thriller, a page turner. Okay. And it's a sexy, it's a, and I have to emphasize, it's such a sexy book. Oh. Uh, it's an incredibly sexy book, and I think it, that might be how it's viewed as a book of its time. It's a very kind of 60s, psychedelic, mm-hmm. you know, swinging 60s type of book in a, in a way. Right. And um, I think it's – I actually reread it this summer when I was at a residency, and it's still great. It's still fantastic. I couldn't put it down. Wow. But uh, And I don't think it's it, it's aged badly at all, but I could see some people thinking that. Right. Okay, great. Well, let's move on to the second book. Okay. Uh, the second one you chose is a novel by Haruki Murakami, who, uh, I looked this up before we began, according to the latest uh, online oddsmakers, is the leading favorite to win the Nobel Prize for Literature this year, and they're giving right. six to one odds. He seems like he's he'll probably be first on the list until he actually wins it. Um, yeah, so, it's been that way for a good yeah. 10 years now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're all waiting. So you chose his 1994 novel, The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. And it sounds like you're a, a fan of Murakami in general. Why did you select this book rather than one of the others? Um, you know, I mean, well, it's usually considered his, his greatest novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most readers usually... Uh, would agree with that statement. Uh, I, I've read, I think, almost all of his novels, and I feel like you know, if, if you read the early ones, they're quite enjoyable, and they're they're even very emotional and melancholy. I, I feel like when he he wrote the Wine of Bird Chronicle, it was him at his most mature, mm. and it's reflected in the actual character arc that takes place in the book, which is it's about this. This ja- young Japanese man who, you know, a lot like Murakami's characters is uh, kind of indifferent to things. It, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, he's kind of, uh, we would call him vanilla, you know? Right. 
So this is the narrator? Yeah, this is the yeah. narrator of, mm-hmm. of the book. And, and he's kind of uh, shaken into, into history, in a sense, and, and made to confront you know, the atrocities of history. And it's an element of seriousness that I'm not sure he ever wrote about to that level in his previous books. And yet it also has all of these weird and playful and, and just wonderfully bizarre elements that he's always been known for uh, before that. Right. He has this thing where he, he writes a, a very sentimental novel that's, that's serious and doesn't have still kind of bizarre, but not that bizarre. And then he has these really playfully bizarre uh, novels. Uh, and this is up to this point, you know, uh, up to uh, Wine at Bird Chronicle. Mm-hmm. And in, in Wine at Bird Chronicle, I think he, he, he kind of really uh, created a balance of the two things. Mm-hmm. There are scenes and, and images and, and ideas in the book that, that have, I know, you know, I, I, I still remember them vividly. It's like it's um, the scenes where the narrator, I'm not giving anything away, but the scenes where the narrator is, you know, at the bottom of, the, of a dry well uh, and is trapped there and starts thinking of himself and, and of the past. Those are things that you don't forget. You know, there is this very violent scene in Manchuria during the war that, mm. that most people know about if they've read the book. Yeah, he, he just got everything right. Mm. I'm not sure he's been able to write a better book since. He's read enjoyable books since, but I don't think he's written a book as as good to me. Would you say that's because he found a, a serious enough topic to to make it to give it a little more heft? Uh, maybe. I mean, I, I think his his problem, even though I, I devour his books, uh, he kind of writes about the same thing. You know, uh, right? All his male narrators are are, are young. They're kind of, you know, indifferent. Uh, I can think of this story, UFO and Kashiro, where, where the wife, and, you know, wives always leave, you know, these male narrators. Mm-hmm. And the wife tells him, it's like living with you is like living with a chunk of air. And, <laughs> and, and that is basically a description of almost every uh, Mirakami protagonist, male protagonist. Right. And then and, they, they get pulled into some sort of mystery to solve or some kind of it's exactly it's not kind of a mild quest, I guess. It's a that's very a, true. Yeah. yeah. And there's also he also has a lot of digressions and a lot of playfulness and it I don't know if it's quite on the level of John Fowles, but it seems like you don't mind reading books that don't move straight from point A to point B. Yeah, it's it seems that way in certain books for sure. Mm-hmm. I think Kafka on the shore definitely felt that way. And I, I kind of lose my patience with him sometimes. You mm. know, I, I read Kafka on the shore, loved the first half, and, and the second half infuriated me so much. I said, I'm not going to read him anymore. <laughs> you know, I say, like, this is silly, you know. Because it, it was too much digression? Not so, well, digression is part of it. I think there's, there's also this sense that he not only repeats himself, He's also, he can be a really bad prose writer. Mm, you know, uh, right. there's this wonderful essay where someone said, like, you know, uh, he is the worst great, uh, he is, the, <laughs> the, he, he ha- of all the great writers, he has the worst prose, right. you know. And, and he's not a good prose stylist, but that's part of his charm in a way. Right. You know, he repeats things from other books, and sometimes it feels like he, for lack of a better phrase, is just pulling stuff out of his butt. Right. Uh, you know, bizarre for bizarre's sake, and so you get a little frustrated with that. But somewhere along the way, he he his he just works his magic spell, 
and you can't not read it. You know, it's, it's a very, I can't think of many writers that do that, that I, I judge in terms of craft and yet I can't stop reading him. Right. Uh, it you know. pulls you along. He does that style, whether it's any sort of essay, it, it almost seems like he does just have this, this gift. It's funny that you say that about the prose because I, I heard that the, the translator at one point was being criticized and saying, yeah. you know, like, how can you, how can you be a, how can you call yourself a translator when you make his English so, uh, so choppy and, and, yeah, yeah. and, and the translator was like, you should read it in Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> no, he has this kind of invisible style. And, but the, the thing is that you, you come to realize that that not only contributes, but creates the effect. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, when you have this very, it's almost like a monotone, vanilla, unaffected tone. It allows, you know, when the bizarre things arise, when the the really intellectual things suddenly pop up, you're affected by them more. Right. Especially like, you know, the weirdness, you know, the, the weirdness presented in that very monotone style it has a more, you know, visceral effect. It's it's very interesting, you know? And you realize that if he was more of a pro stylist, it wouldn't work. Right. I think that's I think that's a great way of putting it. I think a lot of times literary fiction uh, authors that's something that they lose track of um the ability to create that effect, you know, that so many so many people are sentence writers. And yeah. you read one beautiful sentence and you know they've perfected it. And then the next one and, and you just you start reading and you realize you're never going to read a cliche and every sentence is going to be beautiful and all of that. And yeah. you, you admire it. But then there's a, a gorgeous sentence and then another and then another. And pretty soon you start thinking about the author and you yeah. start thinking about how this writer is is so excellent and how he's such a poet and all of these things. And, you know, it's hard for a writer to sneak up on a reader with a surprise if they're thinking about the author and how imaginative and how inventive the the author is all the time. I I absolutely agree with you. You know, it it, it, I mean, it depends on the writer, but for certain writers of, of, you know, lyrical and beautiful, quote unquote, writers of prose, it has diminishing returns, you know. Right, right. I, I feel like this is partly... Book reviewers, I, I find book reviewing very frustrating. I think most book reviewers are not very convincing and they're not very good writers. And one of the things that I see all the time is that when they, for example, they're reviewing a book and as evidence of the book's great writing, the author's great writing, they cite, you know, a, a, an analogy or a metaphor or a simile as if that is the, uh, right. yep. the embodiment of, of, of good writing. And it's not. That's, you know, it's a very, Sometimes it actually it could be a great simile, but it's to the detriment of the sentiment that's being expressed, right? Right. Uh, and you're right. It 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 ends up being more about the author than about the actual character or the moment that's being described. So yeah, sometimes beautiful language, yeah, has diminishing returns. So yeah, I agree with you. Right. Okay. Are you ready for the bonus question? Sure. Okay. An angel appears to you and tells you that your life as you currently know it is over. The good news <laughs> is that you will get to have a new life in which your entire existence is devoted to reading the works of Haruki Murakami. <laughs> the angel gives you two choices. In the first scenario, you will read Murakami as part of a collective of other people 
also reading Murakami. Every day you're allowed to read one chapter, and then you will go into a room with others and discuss what you've just read. Your other choice is to read Murakami by yourself. In this scenario, you can read all the Murakami you want, and you can reflect on it privately, but you won't be part of a group that's also reading Murakami. Which do you choose? Wow, that is so such a specific scenario. <laughs> let me let me tell you what this came from. Wow, I had this feeling when I was reading uh, Murakami. Just just living with Murakami as a literary figure is some people all they want to talk about is what they're you know the Murakami. Yeah. They they read the book and they want to set it down yeah. and run yeah. outside and find somebody and grab them and say, "Have you read this?" I really you know. And other people, it's like this private pleasure, and they. Uh, yeah. They don't want to spoil it by having anybody else give their thoughts about it or their opinions and they almost you almost get the feeling they they wish Murakami was an author that who was writing them a letter or something that no one else had access to. Yeah, that's that's very true. That's true of a lot of, you know, authors, right? Right. But I mean, I uh, I guess I would have to go with, you know, uh the collective, you know, mm-hmm. reading it as a collective. Uh, not just because it's Mirakami, but just in general, when I read something great, when I watch a great movie or, or listen to something new that's that's blowing my mind, I have to talk about it. Right. You know, it's it's like part of you know part of the pleasure of experiencing something like that is 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 sharing it with someone else or or talking about it, processing it with someone else, for example. It, it's a private thing, but it's also a very collective thing for me. So I would have to go with that, you know. Right. It'd be hard for me to to love something and not want to tell or talk to someone about it. Right. I think the other thing people are afraid of is that other people don't get Murakami the way they do. And so (laughs) they would worry, you know, like, oh, I know there'd be that one guy who would just spoil everything by telling me that, you know, that such and such meant, you know, that X meant this or that Y meant that. Um but that's good. Well, you, you know, seem I to have some faith in your fellow yeah. human beings as as good readers. <laughs> well, I don't know how much faith I have. I just know I got to talk to someone. So it's just, <laughs> I just it's a risk I'm willing to take. You'll take the risk. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Uh, the Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. And this is takes us into some different territory altogether. Uh, it was published in 1920, and it's a classic novel. It tells the story of an upper-class couple living in the Gilded Age, the high society of New York in the 1870s, which Wharton herself had lived through as a young girl. I'm always astounded by the uh, the story that she grew up as Edith Jones, and that that's where the her family yeah. was so prominent that that's where the phrase "keeping up with the Joneses" actually comes from. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, she was. She was the Jones. Yeah, um, yeah, that's amazing. And Thanks. so she had kind of lived through this gilded age. I'm guessing, though, in the novel, uh, for people who haven't encountered the novel or the film, um, there's a, a couple who's about to get married, and some complications are introduced by the bride's cousin, who is plagued by scandal and scandal in the 1920. I guess 1920, looking back at the 1870s. But I'm, you know, this is such a a specific milieu. And I think a lot of people who came to this through the Martin Scorsese film just remember the the sumptuous scenery and everything that that he put in. And I'm guessing that it is that you grew up in a world very different from 
the world portrayed in the book, as most of us did. So what about the book appealed to you? Yeah, I grew up in a very different world. I think, you know, a lot of things appealed to me. You know, in, in many ways, I feel like it's, for me, the great American novel. Mm. That, that no one ever thinks of it as the great American novel. And, and the reason I think of it in those terms is that, you know, it, it's so much, and so much of her fiction is about this, but especially this book, is about America shuffling off the old world. Mm-hmm. You know, around that time, I think America was still holding on to these kinds of European values, especially right. up, upper class values, uh, the, those elements of class and and wealth and privilege and all the morality that comes with it. Mm-hmm. What Edith Wharton dramatized so well in a novel like this and also The House of Mirth is is that kind of escape from that, that, that forced escape from that, those old world values. And that you realize to a certain degree that a lot of these characters uh, who stand in for America in a sense, that they can't really find themselves or they really can't do anything uh, on their own unless they, they, uh, they shuffle off these, this old world skin. Right. That's basically, I think, what Newland Archer has to struggle with. Mm-hmm. I think in that character of, of Countess Olenska, I think that's her name, right? I mean, she is the embodiment of a rebellion against the old world. Right. She is the new world and, and, you know, this, this young kind of perfect, beautiful woman that Newland ends up marrying is, you know, the old world. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think a love story really matters, you know, because like what he chooses, he has so much to lose. He has so much to lose. And, and it's, it's something that I think contemporary novels don't have. Uh, Vivian Gornick writes this wonderful essay about the death of the novel of love. And that's essentially her point is that the stakes are so, so minor these days. If you're writing about contemporary times, the stakes for love, for the choices you make for love, Mm. so minor compared to what they used to be. It's not to say that we still don't have the same problems, but because of class, because of how moral values worked in that class system, you have so much to lose when you make the quote-unquote wrong choice, mm-hmm. you know? And right. that's what Dylan has to struggle with throughout the novel. And, you know, reading it, I just felt I was so moved by how Edith Wharton portrayed his struggle. You know, and not only his struggle, but also Countess Olenska. Countess Olenska is not this kind of like just uh, mysterious. She's kind of like a femme fatale in the crime novel, you know, but she has so much depth and so much pain. In, in how she's portrayed in the novel. So you feel her pain as well. It, it also has one of the best endings, I think, that I, uh, I can think of. And, mm. and this is one thing that the Scorsese movie does perfectly. I right. think uh, I read the book first and then I saw the movie. But, you know, when I think of Newland Archer, I think of Daniel Day-Lewis. He p- plays him perfectly. Mm. And, 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 and no moment does he play more perfectly than, than the last moment. Right. I don't know if I should give away, but like it's his response to his son in that scene at the end. I don't know if you've read the book is is just perfectly played because you see all the bitterness, all the pain. But you also see if you think about it, you see dramatized in that one character, the 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 struggles that America has gone through in trying to become itself. 
Mm-hmm. And, and part of becoming itself is, is finding its own set of values that are untouched by old world European values. Right. And, and therefore finding its identity that way. Now, do you think that Wharton was nostalgic for the past or advocating sort of eager for to sweep away the past and advocating for a, a future? Or do you think she was just turning her, her novelist's eye to the, to what was available and seeing the richness in this transition? I, I think it's both. I think, it, you know, I think she realized that it was inevitable, mm-hmm. that you can't have a country this big, America, you can't have a country this big and with this much ambition and this much, you know, uh, youthful energy and, and not have this inevitable shift toward, away from, from the old world. I mean, mm-hmm. she knew it was inevitable and, and she knew that it came with a price. And I think she also knew, and you, and you can feel this in all her work, is that it is a mixture of nostalgia, kind of melancholy for that old world, the right. loss of that old world, but also at the same time, a realization that the new world is, is pretty powerful mm-hmm. and, and inevitable. And really what she, I think, I, I feel like she, what she was interested in is, is that the conflicts that arise out of that, that simultaneous nostalgia, but also need for, for progress. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yep. I remember, um, I think it was in Michael Pollan's book about his, that little house that he built. And he was, he was talking about how America, so many of the houses are kind of flimsy, you know, and they're made yeah. out of basically two by fours and, and drywall. And, and yeah. he was saying, you know, most people look at that and Americans will go to visit Europe and say, look at these beautiful, you know, stone mm-hmm, per- permanent yeah. in Paris or something. And you look at the beautiful buildings and, and how grand they are and everything. And he said, you know, the difference is the way Americans' houses are where they they don't last that long and they it's constant renewal and it's constant moving forward. And it's, it's you know, people are buying new houses and tearing down the old ones and, and building the new ones. And it fits into the American project, I guess, or the... The American the ethos, personality, American ethos. the ethos, exactly. And, you know, this is one of the reasons that I write about Las Vegas, because, oh, Las, right. because Las Vegas is the shining embodiment of, of that <laughs> ethos, you know, is that right. you know, there's nothing old. and There's no nostalgia in Vegas. You know, I, I played poker at casinos, and the thing I noticed speaking to poker players was that they, they're not nostalgic about the past. They're always thinking about, you know, the future and what their, what the, their potential for, for winning this or that. And it's reflected in the architecture. You know, things are constantly being demolished. You know, a new, brighter, shinier building rises uh, in place of it. Mm-hmm. I recently, two weeks ago, I went to Paris for the very first time, and it's an impossibly beautiful place. Mm-hmm. But part of that beauty is, is, is about the past, right. which is not necessarily a bad thing, but you realize that when people are surrounded only by that kind of aged beauty, I think it ends up affecting their present life. I mean, there's negatives and positives about either way of living, right? But I, I think it's it's a mistake to think that if you're surrounded by that kind of endlessly beautiful but aged beauty, that that it affects how you think of the future and how and how you think of happiness. That that happiness is only in the past or or happiness is only in preserving the past. That really gets in the way of progress, uh, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. 
there are a lot of issues with with that the mentality of of a city like Vegas, but that that hope and that endless hope and mm-hmm. endless belief in prosperity in the future uh, that definitely you know creates a different kind of energy. Right, right. The energy of endless hope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're fooling yourself. It it can be easily be a fantasy. Right. But but you know who doesn't live a fantasy? Right. Okay. Bonus question. You are the keeper of a small library. On the shelves are the collected works of Jane Austen, George Eliot, Thomas Hardy, Henry James, Leo Tolstoy, and Edith Wharton. A visitor arrives and says, please recommend one book from the library. If I like the book, I'll give you a million dollars. Would you reach for The Age of Innocence? Do you think it's... Is that the book that you would pin your hopes on, or would you would you defer and go with one of the others? Wow, wow that's, that's so tough, because I have to choose w- one of those books for a, a possible million-dollar price. Yes. I, I, it's, it's, <laughs> I take these hypotheticals so seriously. It's like, it, it would depend <laughs> on the person, right? Who's giving them, I mean, are they American? Uh, oh. uh are they, uh, you know, are they a romantic? Um, right. Okay. Well, why don't we do this? Describe for me the person to whom you would give the age of innocence. Okay. That's, that's a great question. I would give it to a young American. Mm-hmm. I would give it to a young American, a young millennial. Right. And, and that's risking a lot because they could easily hate this book, but, but I feel it stands a better chance than <laughs> Henry James. Henry, definitely, definitely Henry James. There, there's no way I'm losing out to Henry James. And Edith Wharton would agree with me. Right. Too. Jane Austen uh, might give you a. Jane a, Austen is tough. Jane yeah. Austen is tough. And even I would say, uh, I mean, e- even Tolstoy wouldn't be as tough as Jane Austen. Right. I, I forgot you mentioned Austen. Yep. I have to say, I, I think, I think I would have to give Austin. I mean, if we're serious about the million dollars, I would have to give Austin. Maybe Pride, but, and, Pride and Prejudice, or yeah, I mean, Emma or Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. I mean, I mean, those things, uh, those books, I, I don't think can kind of, I don't think Edith Wharton, as much as I love her, can compete with those books. Uh, I love Edith Wharton more, even though I, I'm a. I'm a big fan of Jane Austen, but Edith Wharton is more my taste. But even so, it's a million dollars, and I think right. I have to give it to Austen. <laughs> but but my, the ideal reader—I mean, the, who would I give it to if it was, you know, *Age of Innocence* or or any Edith Wharton novel? Uh, I'd be interested to see how a young, you know, uh, millennial would react to it. Yeah. Have you ever taught this? I have not. I, I have not taught Age of Innocence. Uh, I, I will teach, uh, I actually will be teaching it this fall though, but only the first chapter. I'm teaching a class on, uh, uh, you know, a fiction writing class on first chapters. Oh, right. We're going to read the first chapters of, um, uh, of, you know, like 10 or 11 books and, and talk about, you know, what it is about these first chapters that, that make them, uh, successful. Ooh. Uh, openings for the for the novels oh that sounds great i think i'm gonna have to invite you back on the show and we can talk about the chapters you chose and whether it oh, matched up with, with your uh how the students responded yeah um, but you always are a little bit afraid about teaching your your favorite book oh, yeah 
because you know, and I'm sure you've done this, right? I mean, it can be very humbling. Yeah, you can risk them hating it and say, "Wait a minute." You make it sometimes even makes you question why you love the thing to begin with, you know? Right. When you're standing there in front of the class and you're thinking, exactly. you know, I'm not sure I can defend this. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll tell you an interesting story about Edith Wharton. I recently did a podcast episode where um, I had a, uh, a guest on and we discussed the 100 books recommended for college-bound readers, which is a list that's put out by the College Board, which is the the organization that does the SAT and all of that. And... I got an email from a reader and basically we went through and we just weeded out all kinds of things that were, yeah. you know, we said we're outdated and nobody needs to read this anymore. And the list looks like it hasn't been updated since 1985. And <laughs> that was the general take. And people responded and they're like, you're right. It's crazy that they don't include, you know, some, some more contemporary fiction. It's a, a list that looks like it's for people who hate to read and things like that. <laughs> and uh, I got one email from a uh, a young man who said, you know, I agree with you on everything, and I think uh, I, I wish you would put out a list of your own so that I could, you know, I'd happily adopt it as books that I should read before I turn 30. And he said, but the one thing is, it didn't sound like you guys were going to keep Edith Wharton's House of Mirth. And I just, I think that's completely wrong. I think that's one of the best books I've ever read. And you, you got, come on, you got to keep Wharton on the list. <laughs> that's great. Good for him. Good for him. So it is resonating, I think, even though uh, a lot of people, um, you know, Wharton kind of gets a bad rap sometimes, I think. I think people kind of, they have an idea about her as being stuffy or, or to, um, I think it's her proximity to Henry James, you know, that, that uh, could be part of it. Yeah. Being one of his protégés, I think in history, they're kind of, uh, written about a lot together and, mm -hmm. and she was a very different writer, you right. know, and to some degree, I think a better writer, more readable, um, I think much more readable. I mean, I think James is impenetrable, uh, for me sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I think that 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 proximity, to James, at least in the academy, I think sometimes uh, ends up creating. Yeah, they think the they come to it with the expectation that it's going to be like James, and then they think it's, exactly it's James Light, and it, yeah, it really exactly. isn't the right way to to think of her. That, that's exactly that's what I wanted to say <laughs> right there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of readable, let's move on to your fourth choice, which is *The Big Sleep* by Raymond Chandler, which is uh, a a fun read. Um, it's a classic noir novel, and uh, it's famous as the the basis for the Howard Hawks film with Humphrey Bogart yeah. playing the lead detective. I know that your uh, we haven't talked yet about your novel Dragonfish, but this one seems like it's maybe the closest of um, to your book. I don't know if you would if you would agree, but I'm wondering was Raymond Chandler somebody that you turned to 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 kind of see how a book like that worked? Yeah, yeah, I I did. I turned to him a lot. Mm -hmm. um, actually, you know, I had a number of books on my desk as I was writing Dragonfish and. And both uh, Wind Up Bird Chronicle and 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 The Big Sleep uh, were were two of them that I would constantly you know look at and you know turn to random pages and and kind of study. Yeah. Um, 
And just to get the like the prose style running through you through your mind yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny with with Chandler because uh, in many ways I don't like Chandler. <laughs> you know, I, I it's really I mean I I like the book a lot. I love the book, but I have issues with Chandler. I right? uh, even with the big sleep, I I think I think the last page is, is badly written because the, the word the phrase big sleep is written. It's like repeated four <laughs> times and it loses its effect. Um, I also find him impossibly moral. Ah, uh, right. I, I find him moral to a degree that's uninteresting. But it's part of it was part of Chandler's philosophy about this new kind of uh, of, of mystery writing. You know, detective the detective novel where the, the detective is more a, a reflection of criminals. Right. Right. The world world of criminals is not just about you know Sherlock Holmes you know uh, finding clues and 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 then figuring out the solution to the problem I think for for Chandler he wanted to be a re, a more accurate reflection uh, of the criminal element and and of morality but what's ironic about that is that his his main character Philip Marlowe his detective I found sometimes unrealistically good you right. know and to a degree where he's less interesting because of it. And I think this is a, a big issue for me in a book like the, the, the Long Goodbye. But at the same time, I mean, Chandler is such a stylist that you, you kind of like Murakami, but in a different way, you know, you're, uh, you can't help being under his spell. Right. I mean, he just, he's just a wonderful writer. Yeah. You read the beginning, the first two chapters of The Big Sleep and, and yeah, the plot moves along, but it's it's really the sentences that really get you there, get you through. It's they're so good, and they're so declarative and so I, I want to say muscular, but that's not quite what I'm aiming for. Right, right, robust, energetic, yeah. robust, yep. and and full of life. Yep. And there's a sense of humor. There's a wry sense of humor there that's that's really wonderful, wonderful too. And you know his similes are always right yeah, on. Right. Uh, they're great. You know. Yeah, it's a the, and there's always these sleight of hands too that that you know especially as a writer you really appreciate. So you end up reading his books for style more for style than for substance. Right. And the stories themselves can be really interesting, but but I, I like you you said I mean they're they're these kind of Byzantine plots yeah. that that don't always add up. <laughs> you know. Right. There's a famous story of. Uh... Howard Hawks was making the movie and he couldn't figure out yeah. who killed the chauffeur. So he called up Raymond Chandler who took a minute to think about it and then he, he confessed that he didn't really know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that doesn't surprise you at all, you know. Right. So I, I don't end up remembering a lot of his plots. Right. But I remember I, I remember his sentences and, and his scenes and and the kind of vitality in the prose and, and, and in the uh, the narrative. And, you know, and that's something that I, I learned a lot from. You know, that's really a, a an underrated aspect, I think, of detective fiction and 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 mysteries is just how much people turn to them just to spend time in the company of yeah. of the yeah. author's voice and the the character. You're absolutely right, and and you definitely feel that way with Chandler. I mean, I, I actually enjoy James Cain's, you know, of the the triumvirate, you know, James Cain. Dashiell Hammett and James and Chandler. Mm -hmm. I love all three, I, but I think my favorite, my favorite books are James Cain's books. Mm. But Chandler is the superior stylist, right? You know? So it's it's weird how it works like that. Yeah, Chandler probably inspired 
quite a few uh, tons of paper worth of yes. uh, bad writing. <laughs> Probably, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's kind of like Hemingway in that way. Yeah, yeah. It seems very easy, but it's not. Right, no. right. And so, you know, is the Byzantine plot something that you... It, it felt like it was giving you license to do that, or did you try to avoid that when you were writing Dragonfish? Well, I think in my mind, Dragonfish doesn't have that. I don't think you could call the plot Byzantine. Mm-hmm. I think how Chandler helped me was, again, with style, with kind of constant uh, movement forward. Mm-hmm. Not just the, the plot, but the, the prose does all that, of course. Right. And, and the architecture of the sentences is very important. Right. It doesn't meander. It kind of gives you... Exactly. It, it pulls you from one sentence to the next. Exactly. And and that that forward movement was something that I I, I really wanted to learn how to do. Mm-hmm. And I was always conscious of when I was writing Dragonfish. Even though Dragonfish was a slog for me to write, but I was conscious. I, it needs to move forward in this way. And Chandler helped me probably more than anyone. Right. Okay. Bonus question. All right. You are an out-of-work Hollywood screenwriter. A producer calls and tells you that he wants you to draft a remake of The Big Sleep. The only catch is that you have to change the character and the setting. You can keep the plot, he says, but he doesn't want the book set in L.A., and he doesn't want a white male as the lead character. What screenplay do you write? Well, this is this is really funny because it was kind of... Uh, my original idea for Dragonfish was to, <laughs> was to write a version of Big Sleep where the detective is Vietnamese, right? You know, and and the setting I forgot where did I want? To, I think I wanted to set it in Las Vegas, you know, um, right? And then I, you know, I kind of changed my mind and made him a, a white protagonist instead uh, in Dragonfish. But but yeah, I think I would do that. You know, I'd make it a, a you know a Vietnamese. Detective, uh, uh, Vietnamese Philip Marlowe. Yeah, 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 I think that's what I would do. That's a great question. (laughs) We've already talked about Vegas. Is it is that why you would take Vegas over L.A. because you'd, uh, or as an alternative to L.A. because Vegas has got the the sense of um, of energy and reinvention and hope. That's definitely true. Mm -hmm. That's definitely true. You know, I mean, that's one of the reasons why. It was never something that I planned at the beginning. These things kind of come naturally sometimes, and that's ideally what you want, that, that these ideas come organically. And I, I realized that, that setting a novel about immigrants in Vegas was very appropriate, you know, because of that idea of, of either uh, as an immigrant you, you're escaping the past or, or you are carrying these stories that weigh you down that you're not willing to share with people right. you know i think a city like vegas is, is is a lot about obviously renewal you know a lot of people in vegas are from elsewhere you mm-hmm. know and they, they come to vegas for a new life it's kind of like a, a microcosm of, of the american dream in its most obvious form and you come there to to escape whatever life you had and was either traumatic or insufficient and you come to Vegas with hopes of a more prosperous future. Right. Or at least a, a way to redefine yourself in a way that's more pleasing to you. Right. And I think Vegas allows for that because it doesn't judge people in the same way that other cities do. It doesn't. And the other thing that it would have that would allow you to 
keep something from the big sleep is the morality is all everybody is a little bit of a criminal in Vegas or they're, you know, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it, it taps into everybody's, um, it, it shows there's more fluidity to good and bad. That's very true. Now um, you had mentioned, like I asked you about, uh, to, to also throw in a couple of films and you mentioned Alfred Hitchcock's vertigo and Wong Kar Wai's in the mood for love. And it occurs to me in thinking about the four books that you chose and then the the films and the filmmakers that mood and atmosphere are something that you really value. Absolutely. I'm wondering if in setting a book in a place like Vegas, you'd you'd really be counting on the atmosphere of Vegas to really suffuse the story that you're telling. Yeah, you know, and... and I kind of wanted to to take an unexpected approach. I don't think people generally think of Vegas and think melancholy. Right. But right. I, I think there is a sadness to Vegas. There's a, a loneliness to it. When I used to, to go out around midnight to go play at the casinos, there was always a weird sadness about it because mm. I'd be leaving my apartment and the roads would be clear. And then you get to the casino and it's nighttime and you're you feel very alone and suddenly you're in this casino that's alive and it could be like the afternoon outside and no one would know the difference. Yeah. And sometimes you have to remind yourself of that, but it doesn't necessarily cheer you up. It cheers you up temporarily, but eventually you kind of see, it's not just about like losing at gambling. It's about like these people who, who come for that very thing, who come to this environment to escape, not just escape, reality but to escape time in a way mm-hmm. because it is it is timeless in a casino there are no clocks you know literally right and and but that ends up you you see that that need for escape in them you see that need to to not just win at whatever game they're playing but that or or the sadness of losing you know and being hopeless right you see that need for escape and and it's it's it can be rather sad you know yeah, I can remember I, I had a layover in the Vegas airport once and wasn't thinking much of it, just headed to get my my burrito or whatever I was having for lunch. Yeah. And, and these people would, would come off the plane and they would be, you know, either on their way to Vegas or just coming back and they'd have open drinks in their hand and they'd have, <laughs> you know, they'd be wearing like beads and, and, you know, hats and all of this excitement and they would just be it almost seemed like they were trying so hard to get ready for the good time or, yeah. you know, to, to gin up the energy in their little group uh, of people that were all headed out there. And, and it did feel like, like they were almost on a treadmill or something, mm-hmm. you know, with the, the activity that they were trying to, to muster up. Well, that's part of where the sadness comes from, I think. Cause yeah. inevitably, you know, you, I think very few cities in America have, there are very few cities in America that, that almost everyone, no matter who you are, whether you've been to the city or not, has a very specific idea about. I think maybe New York is the only other city that's yeah. like that. I was going to say, I was going to say New Orleans. Or New Orleans. That's another good example. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, I know what you mean. But inevitably there is a disappointment that sets in that right. it, it can't possibly, you know, reach those expectations yeah. that, that a lot of people have for it. Yeah. And, yeah. but you're very right about, the mood and the tone. I mean, I, I, I did choose those movies, not only, or those two directors, not only because of, of, of how they're connected to my novel, but you know, they're, they're very, 
Vertigo is a very incredibly atmospheric, melancholy movie. Mm. And Wong Kar Wai is a director that I've always, in many ways, I, <laughs> uh, I don't want to set myself up for a bad comparison here, but like I try to create the same kind of mood that he does in his movies. He does it with imagery, with music, with, you know, everything is about tone for him because it, it, it very much becomes a, a framework uh, through which you see his characters. Right. And I try to do the same thing in my work. And I feel it's it's the mode that I work best in when I'm I'm working in that mood. You mm. know, you realize that that you're good at certain things and as a writer and you can and you should kind of think about that. You constantly want to to expand your, you know, your horizons and, and, and try new things. But I, I've always known that I, I write best in that particular mood, a mood of melancholy and loss. And, uh, and uncertainty and ambiguity. Direct filmmakers like Wong Kar Wai have helped me as much, if not more, than, than a lot of writers. And, and Vertigo, I think, is the perfect example of that for me. If, if I could one of these days write a book that is like Vertigo, I, even though I know Vertigo was originally a novel, but if I could write my version of, of, of Vertigo the movie, I would be very happy. Uh. Um, uh, yeah, because it, I find that movie endlessly compelling. Hmm. Okay, well, this sets up our final bonus question very nicely. Assume that you are the author of the novel Dragonfish. You give a reading. A fan comes up and says, oh, I loved this book. I've never read another book that I enjoyed more. What other books or films can you recommend? I, I would definitely recommend uh, Vertigo. Vertigo, uh, that's that, the one. Yeah, I would, because I, I I was thinking so much of the movie when I was writing it. Yeah. You know, the fact that the movie begins as a particular kind of movie and then becomes a completely different kind of movie, right. I, I think, <laughs> and it's obsessive. It's about obsession and it's about uh, it's about fantasy. How we create, you know, how we you know make people into fantasies when we can't have them the way we want them. Right, and uh, that's very much something that's going on in my book. So yeah, I think if someone likes Dragonfish, I would definitely point them to Vertigo or any Wong Kar Wai movie, mm. um, especially in the mood for love. And that was that was based on Vertigo, I think, right? I I had no idea. Are you serious? In the mood for love was yeah. Wong Kar Wai admitted at one point that he had based it on Vertigo. Oh my God, you've totally blown my mind. <laughs> how how wonderful that I kind of you know. Uh, you were drawn to both. Oh wow, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a little blown away by this, uh, by this fact. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, they're both, I think, a little bit uh, underrated. They're such fantastic films. Um, and Hitchcock was uh, can't remember now the three. Hitchcock had three movies in three years, and I want to say uh, yeah. one was Vertigo, one was Psycho, and the other was either. Uh, North by Northwest or Rear Window, but it, it's just like a to think that he was able to do, you know, three such excellent and such yeah. different movies in three years. I'm not sure anybody has really had a career like his. No, I I, I agree. I I think it's Rear Window, but but you could be right. It could be North by Northwest. But you're absolutely right. 
I'm still trying to get over the the whole connection to in the mood for love. It's so great. It's such a wonderful, wonderful connection. Oh, um, I'm, I'm glad I I could fill that role for you. So let's yeah. let's stop there, and uh, why don't we have you back, and we'll talk about first chapters, and you can give us your uh, your thoughts after you've had some time to absorb the uh, the Wong Kar Wai uh, Vertigo connection. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I would love to. I would love to talk about that. I mean, I, I'm I'm excited about teaching the class too. And I'm I'm starting a new novel, so for me it's it's a, as much about trying to figure out things for myself as it is uh, uh, helping students with their first chapters. So oh, uh, it'll be inter- it'll be an interesting experience for me as well. Okay, well, good luck with your writing and good luck with your class, and thank you very much for joining us today on the History of Literature podcast. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> Wasn't that great? I really enjoyed that. I'm not sure I've had such an epiphany on this show, where an author chooses two films for our discussion, and I break the news to him that one is based on the other. Fantastic. We'll definitely invite Vu back to discuss that further, and to hear how that course is going. First chapters. I think John Gardner taught a class like that back in the day. Be interesting to hear how it goes down there in Hyde Park. I wonder if you get a lot of stories about eating Harold's chicken if you're a professor of creative writing at the University of Chicago. Good story, except it has hot sauce all over it. <laughs> B+. Plus. That's how I imagine it anyway. Harold's chicken. I should see if they want to sponsor this podcast. Harold's chicken and Jimmy's woodlawn tap. I owe them both so much. Speaking of owing... I owe all of you as well a debt of gratitude for joining us on the journey. Remember to send me your comments and questions as we put together the special episode of Listener Feedback. That's jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. You can also find us at jackwilson.com, historyofliterature.com, and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. And you can call our special voicemail box, set up just for anonymous listener feedback. It doesn't cost anything beyond whatever your phone plan charges for a call to the United States. For many of you, I suspect that that is zero. So let us know what's on your mind, and we'll do our best to address it on the air. That's 1-361-4-WILSON. 1-361-494-5766. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We appreciate all of your support and your subscriptions and your efforts to spread the news to all your literary-minded friends. It's a community. Community equals caring. That's what we need on this crazy planet. Caring. Because we're all doomed. (laughs) But in the meantime, we can care. We can make things better. Whoa, that took a turn. Swerve. Call me melancholy. I'm headed to Vegas with a copy of Dragonfish in my carry-on bag. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) ¶¶